There was a little business, about $40,000. I didn't take it. How did you know it was taken? It's what you meant. I don't want anything of his or any part of him. Except his life. I didn't know what I was doing. I, I didn't know anything except how much I hated. But I didn't take anything. I didn't, Jenny. Don't you believe it? Baby, I don't care. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to The Movie Shelf, Episode 2. My name is Eric. And I'm Sana. It is November, and so it was my pick today, and I wanted to talk about noir uh, in honor of Noir-vember. So um, I picked a movie to talk about. It's one that we've watched recently, uh, Out of the Past from 1947, directed by Jacques Tourneur, starring Robert Mitchum, Jane Greer, Kirk Douglas. That's the movie we're going to talk about. Um, Before we do so, what is a film noir? Yeah, I guess a good place to start is, what did you think film noir was when you were a kid? Like, growing up, if someone said that something was film noir, what would you think of? I would think of like smoky rooms, light coming in through blinds and creating streaks of light, uh, detectives in in uh, trench coats, um, femme fatale. Maybe nice saxophone or... Sa- yeah, j- jazzy saxophone. Rainy outside. Mm-hmm. City lights. I mean, it's kind of, kind of think of Batman in some ways. Batman yeah, is the definitely. comic book noir, I guess. Especially thinking of the 1989 Tim Burton Batman, the whole look and the feel of that. Mm-hmm. That was kind of my idea of film noir. This city just needs to all be flushed down the toilet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hard-boiled men and... Corruption everywhere you turn. Exactly. Yeah, well, and um, even if you haven't seen film noir movies, it seems like every kid's show wanted a parody noir. Like, for example, um, there was this show I had seen when my youngest baby sister, who is nine years younger than me, when she was little, there was this reading show called Um, Between the Lions that was on public television to help people learn how to read and they would have cute little segments and one was Sam Spud parboiled potato detective and he'd be at a typewriter and Sam Spud there'd be a neon light flashing in the background and then some dame would walk in and anyway it was cute they have little segments on YouTube you can look it up (laughs) <laughs> That's great. So basically, even as kids, we would we kind of knew what noir was, and it was kind of everywhere. Uh, it was such a famous genre um, growing up that it just kind of pervaded the culture, didn't it? Yeah. Uh, and I think that we've kind of come to the conclusion that most people think of the look and the atmosphere when you think of noir, um, and that includes the the lighting and the dialogue and the costumes that people wear, the glamour glamorous women the you know trench coat clad men um 
something I wanted to talk about because I've been reading about it lately is kind of another side of noir that maybe doesn't get talked about as much, and that's the uh, the moral or the storytelling aspect of noir. Um, one of my favorite critics who I read a lot, uh, his name is Terry Teachout, he spoke about it in terms of the moral element. So he kind of has a a list of what he considers the classic pure noir. Now, this doesn't mean that um, every single thing that we call noir has to have this, has to have all these things, but it's like the archetype, right? Uh, so I wrote it down. First of all, film noir is always shot in black and white. Uh, most of the action takes place in a city at night. The protagonist is a flawed but basically well-intentioned man uh, who finds himself confronted with a moral choice, often involving a shop-worn, sexually alluring woman. So that's the femme fatale for you. Uh, and the next point is, he makes the wrong choice, and in the process, he breaks the law. And then the last thing is, disaster follows, inexorably leading to the death or imprisonment of the man or the woman. Um... So his point is that a pure noir is going to be a tragedy because uh, at this time in Hollywood, you had the, um, the Hayes Code going on. So that was kind of what told you you could or could not include in your movies. Um, one of the things that could not happen at this time was that if you had bad people doing bad things, they couldn't get away with it. Uh, and so that's kind of where some of that dark element of film noir comes from is you want more complicated characters, darker feel to things. You've got to have in the end, they've got to, they've got to go down. You can't have somebody, uh, you know, doing horrible things and then getting away with it. No, they can't get the girl at the end and everything. If you think of it like that, it's a little bit restrictive. If you think of Terry Teachout's rules. Which I, when you're listening to him, it's very convincing. It is. I it, like to think of it that way. because it, it makes it rule. It makes it more than just um, a look. Well, didn't you um, go on some noir foundation website and it was a very very expansive definition yeah so so then you have the other side right <laughs> where there's people who want to include everything so they make the definition almost meaningless where it's like uh, like one of the definitions i read was something like um a, a movie produced during or after the war that has dark themes and it's like well, okay, the it's more than that. Big adventure could qualify. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> um, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, scratch that. Okay. <laughs> so even um, even the Maltese Falcon, which a lot of people say is the first film noir, uh, it doesn't really have a tragic ending because. Sam Spade kind of like does the right thing in the end. And so by these rules, it's not, it's not really a, 
like a pure noir. It's more of a, it's more of like a stepping stone. And I've read that other places too. The Maltese Falcon is more of a stepping stone to a noir. Although I will say this says death or imprisonment of the man and or woman. The man and or the woman. That's right. And yeah. the woman is, yeah, I mean, and we won't say what know, happens Sam, in that movie. Sam Spade isn't peachy clean all the way through. Peachy clean? <laughs> yes. He doesn't come off smelling like roses at every moment. No, he's, he's, he's morally complicated, right? And that's kind of yeah. that. I mean, that's why, even if it's not like, a, by this definition, completely pure, it is... Noir it's adjacent. getting it's getting you to noir. It's what's leading you to it. And then you have double indemnity in nineteen forty four, and that's like as classic archetypal noir as you can possibly get. Yeah. Along with, I would say, out of the past, which we're talking about today. And just as a side note, I have here a little plug for uh ACF movie podcast. Terry Teachout is a frequent guest. Um, Titus Tijera, I'm not really sure how to say your last name, I apologize, but um, he's an excellent host, has great analysis and excellent guests, and they together do a series on noir and noir-adjacent films, um, as well as other things, but um, in honor of November, it's a good time to check those out. I listen to Laura, which is a noir-adjacent film, and they also recommended the book, which I read and is is good. Yep. I'm, yeah, their, I episode, their episodes are all really in-depth and great. It's probably my favorite podcast. I kind of want to get into more of these movies' source material, like the books, because I have a feeling the dialogue is all really good and snappy, and mm-hmm. I just really enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so uh, to move into... The topic at hand, the film Out of the Past. Um, we wanted to address why we wanted to talk about it. We kind of have already. Um, it's a great example of a film noir. Um, one of the the archetypal, like, you know, if you read about it, you'll read that everywhere. This is one of the best, one of the best examples of what a noir is. Um, some of the best acting in it from Robert Mitchum and Kirk Douglas. Um, and it's just a really fun movie. Yeah, it is fun. There's a lot to it. And it's very, very rewatchable. And you'll see yeah, a scene you and you'll to... be like, oh, I forgot about that little scene. And they put so much work into that. So nice. You've got to rewatch it because the first time you see it, you're not going to get everything because the... In true noir fashion, the plot is pretty convoluted in parts. Byzantine, you might say. <laughs> Byzantine, yeah. <laughs> um, well, I will give my little rundown of the plot. So basically, Jeff Bailey, if that's his real name, which it's not, his <laughs> real name is something Markham, um, he is played by Robert Mitchum, And he is a man whose past catches up with him. He works at a gas station in a small town, has a cute girlfriend who's nice, and then some mysterious city slicker shows up to town and says he, you know, his boss wants him to pay a visit. And who's the boss? 
It's a gambler who Mitchum was a detective for years ago. He was supposed to track down this girlfriend who shot him and stole $40,000, but when he found the girlfriend, she was so beautiful, he stayed with her instead, and they went on the run, and then, you know, bad things happened, and now the boss wants him to do another job, but is the job so innocent? No, as it turns out. <laughs> I feel like you're you're doing this almost like it's an, an old-fashioned trailer where it's like... <laughs> Uh, like, will he get out of it? You know, that kind of old-timey... <laughs> well, because it's noir, we That's know exactly. he won't. But the interesting thing is, how will the threads unwind? That's the mm-hmm. question. Right, because he's got his his present life in the small town as a mm-hmm. gas station owner, and then he's got the, you know, the life, quote-unquote, out of the past, where he was the detective... And, you know, where do the two worlds meet? Where do they meet and, you know, like in what particular pattern is it all going to fall apart? Mm-hmm. And anyway, that's the basic synopsis. Um, and he, in a flashback, another typical part of Noir's, is explaining to his girlfriend his previous life. Yep. And, and that's where the narration comes from, which is another classic Noir thing. Yep. And it's it's a really fun little ride and great great character study um and i think you wanted to talk a little bit about the making of a couple things here and there sure um so i mentioned earlier the director uh was a guy named jacques tourneur um he is probably most famous for this movie and then uh, another one called cat people Oh yeah, we had, um, well, you've seen I've that. Seen, I've I have seen not. it. Um, so he he was really well suited to to these kind of darker looking movies. Uh, so Cat People is also really like darkly shot, and I, I'm pretty sure he did it with the same cinematographer who was uh, Nicholas uh, Mus- Mus- Musaraka. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. But a great cinematographer who who could really shoot the night scenes perfectly, and that's why he was so good for um, for Cat People as well, because Cat People's kind of a semi horror movie. Um, and so uh, Jacques Tourneur uh, was set to direct, I think, for that quality that he had, which is pretty unique to him. And you'll notice it when you're watching the movie. Um, and then, so the script was written by the same guy who wrote the original novel. So the original novel was not called Out of the Past. It, it was called um, Build. Build My Gallows High. Um, and it was written by Daniel Mainwaring, except he went under the pseudonym of Jeffrey Holmes. Hmm. Um, and so they got the same guy who wrote the novel to write the script, which was actually uh, pretty common in... In film noir, because a lot of those great classic uh, noirish writers would go and then write the script, like uh, Raymond Chandler too did that with uh, Double Indemnity. That's cool. And so they got Daniel Manwaring, and he wrote a first draft. And then I'm not sure if this is entirely true, but I did read this. Um, th- so that his first draft was not very good, and so they got 
the writer James Kane to come in, and he did a second draft. And then his draft wasn't that good. And then this other guy named Frank Fenton came in and did a third draft. And so the guy who's almost like the most removed from the story came in, and I think his rework of it was what saved it. Hmm. And I think he wrote a lot of the, like, hard-boiled type dialogue that everybody loves from the movie. I wish I had that talent. That'd be so fun to be able to think of those snappy oh, things yeah. to say. Yeah, I, I would love to be that kind of author. Because just, like, every line that they say is memorable and and funny and snappy. Yeah, one of my favorites. I'm kind of speaking out of turn here. But uh, what was it I wrote down? It was basically... Hmm, I... The Robert Mitchum character says, this should give you a little extra time to figure out how you'll cross me, but you won't. It's (laughs) just like... Everything Robert Mitchum says is gold. Yes. And how about that cigarette that's just like barely hanging on by a thread Uh, the whole time? Yeah, so that's one of the main things people talk about with this movie is the smoking. There's like constantly smoking in this movie and Robert Mitchum has this talent where he can have a cigarette hanging on the very edge of his lip and as he's talking it's just dangling there and you'll see that throughout the movie and then the the famous incident that um, everybody quotes is where uh, Robert Mitchum was smoking on set and they just go ahead and start the take and he doesn't remember that he already has a cigarette in (laughs) and so um it's in the script that Kirk Douglas offers him a cigarette. And so he says, cigarette? And uh, Robert Mitchum says, smoking. <laughs> and that's a really funny part that everybody always talks about in this movie because there's so much smoking that, like, Mitchum has to say smoking. Like, he's already, he's like, like I don't need more. I'm already smoking. And it turns out that if the, if the legend is true, that was ad-libbed because Robert mm-hmm. Mitchum didn't even realize he still had a cigarette in when they started the scene. And so he ad-libbed it, and then that saved the scene, and they actually kept that in the movie. That's funny. I hadn't heard of that. Yeah. Um, I don't know, kind of talking about the look of the film and the appearance and the props and everything, one of the things that was the most striking to me of the whole movie is the first time Jeff Bailey sees Kathy. Um, so basically, like, when when he's retelling the story of, oh, I had to track this crazy girlfriend down who shot um, at Whit Sterling, um, and then he finally sees her. She's wearing this fitted white dress with this beautiful hat. Her hair is perfect, lovely face, and I don't know. It's just a very striking look, and... Made me want to look up who did the costumes for this. It turns out to be a guy named Edward Stevenson, who also did the costumes for Citizen Kane. Hmm. And according to IMDb, he was the only son of a Idaho railroad tycoon. So he wanted to be in the motion <laughs> picture business as a costume designer, and I think he did a great job in this movie, um, particularly on that specific look. Um Speaking of Kathy, I kind of wanted to focus my comments on kind of comparing, contrasting Kathy and Anne, the two love interests. And I'll start with Kathy, who is the girlfriend who um, shot 
Whit Sterling. Um, the things I think she really has going for her, why everyone just kind of, everyone falls in love with her in the first half of the movie. She's just beautiful. Um, and she's also very cute. Like the, the banter, the chemistry, the things that they say to each other is snappy and adorable. Like she comes running out in the beach without any shoes and he's like I didn't realize you were so little and taller than Napoleon a lot prettier too and it's just (laughs) like a cute couple basically and yeah and that's the part of the movie where you're watching them on the beach and you're thinking is this a romance or is this a noir what is this (laughs) I mean you know because like it's a flashback and he's talking to his current girlfriend Anne who he likes um, and has said, you know, I want to settle down and get married, basically. Like, you know something went wrong, but while you're watching, you're just like, ah, oh, she, you know, she loves him. It's so obvious. Mm-hmm. But affection only goes so far, and you see that with the first whiff of trouble. You see that crazy peeking out, and she's like, why don't you break his head, Jeff? <laughs> to the um, henchman that came to, well, not the henchman, I guess this was, um, Jeff Bailey's former partner once uh, Whit Sterling got suspicious and thought, okay, he's they've kind of given me the slip. He found my girlfriend, and they're just kind of hanging out together now. So um, Jeff Bailey's former partner finds them, and she just kind she, of snaps. It's like something changes in her, right? So she's she's like beautiful, lovely. Robert Mitchum falls in love with her. And then she kind of shows her true colors. Yeah, and you then you see that from then on, that even though, yes, there was love, affection, and all that, which is great to see in a relationship, she is weak and impulsive and just selfish, concerned with herself. And um, I'm going to give this away. She's basically like Michael Scott, in improv class <laughs> where his answer was always to pull out a gun and go, bang, bang, you're dead. Oh, yeah. That's basically what she does for every problem throughout the movie. And even later in the movie, she wants him killed, Robert Mitchum's character. And one of um, Whit Sterling's henchmen's like, I don't know if this is such a good idea. And she's like, do you have any better ideas? And he's like, mm, I don't know. And then something bad happens to him. And so something, I know, Eric, you're going to be talking about femme fatales a little bit later, mm-hmm. but she is not your typical, ooh, I'm smooth and cool mastermind. She is like, can't you believe me? Even though she's, everyone can see she's lying through her teeth to everyone. She's, yeah, she's more impulsive, right? She's just looking out for number one. And what is that quote? She is... Right, yeah, there, there's a great quote uh, where Robert Mitchum kind of figures her out and he's Describes like... Her. He's like, uh, you're like a leaf blowing... That You're like a leaf that the wind blows from one gutter to another. And that's pretty much true. And so, you know, we all love her because the chemistry is great, but then, yeah, that makes us just not trust her for anything. Yeah, and and Jane Greer, she is beautiful. I mean, especially Mm -hmm. the way that she's filmed. She has these, like, 
doe eyes. And yeah. you want to trust her. Yes, that's true. Or Robert Mitchum wants to trust her. He's like, baby, I don't care if you're telling the truth. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great line from the movie is where she's trying to convince him that she didn't steal the 40000 And he's he just says, baby, I don't care. She reminds me a little bit of Anne Baxter because Anne Baxter was also very cute and, um, but sometimes played bad. Like in All About Eve? In All About Eve and uh, Ben Hur, right? Yep. Or no, is it Ben no, no. Moses? Ten, Ten, Ten Commandments. Commandments. Yeah. yeah. Ten Commandments. I always get that confused. But yeah, similar sort of like not great characters, even though they're beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. And. There was one more thing that, that kind of plays say. into like what a, an archetype the the seductive woman always has been, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, well, there was something else I was going to say. I don't remember, but I will move on to Anne. She is also very pretty, not as glamorous, maybe. As um, and, Kathy and Anne is is Robert Mitchum's girlfriend in the small town. Yeah, his, small his town, present life. The decent girlfriend um, who's respectable, um, and she actually reminds me in certain shots just a little bit of that girl from Hugo. I looked up her name, Chloe Grace Moretz. Face reminded me a little bit of her. I can see that. Um, but the banter isn't necessarily as fun between Anne and um, Jeff Bailey, but she has what matters to him now that he's um, kind of tasted that glamorous life and found, okay, it's not all it's cracked up to be. She has loyalty. Um, no matter what he tells her, she's just like, that's okay. It's all in the past, you know, I I get it. It's all in the past, even though it's not, and it's becoming more and more clear that, okay, no, these consequences one by one are catching up with him, even Kathy, and she's like, you know what, I'll be loyal just as long as I know that your heart isn't in the past, that you're with me in the future. And there's even a line at the end, I don't even know if we want to, Talk about it. We can if you want. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to give the end away, but yeah, we can talk about kind of g- generally. Yeah. So there's basically a line at the end, and she basically wants to know ultimately if his heart was in the past, or, um, you know, did he turn back to his former fallen ways? And anyway, but um, whereas Kathy is. She will use any device. She'll lie to everyone, everything. Um, She'll kill you or she'll want to kill you one minute and then the next minute beg for her life and say she loved you and she wants to run away with you um, just to serve herself. Whereas Anne, she turns her back, you know, respectfully on her parents, on, you know, people she grew up with to try to, I guess, be loyal to Jeff Bailey. So it's just a total contrast. Yeah, and and some people say, like, I think when we we watched the commentary for this movie, 
And one of the things he said was that um, Anne was a really simple character. And we kind of talked about that when he said that and said, you know, it's okay for her to be really simple because she needs to be for the story. Yeah. Because <laughs> she she's like the polar opposite and the contrast of mm-hmm. of Kathy. Because she's like pure and trustworthy and Kathy is all over the place. Like you said, one minute she wants to kiss you and the next minute she wants to shoot you. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the commentary because that's actually what I was trying to remember earlier. Basically, I mean, we've read a lot of different reviews of this out of the past and seen the commentary that goes along with the Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I don't remember who does that, but we didn't quite... He, he was a film noir historian. We didn't agree necessarily, and that's okay. I mean, it's fun with these movies. There's a lot that's ambiguous. Everyone can kind of come away with their own interpretations. But there's a point... that point when she kind of snaps and you see, oh, okay, she is not this, you know, nice person. She's got kind of a streak of crazy to her. Um, When she order or she basically shoots Mitchum's partner um, after the partner, you know, comes to kind of mess things up for them. And, um, that's when the commentary guy was like, and that's when she showed that she was stronger than Jeff Bailey. And I was like, I don't agree with that. Yeah, because, because Jeff, so in this part, Jeff Bailey's fighting. Yeah. With, what's his, what's his name? Fisher. With Fisher. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're like fist fighting. Yeah. And. She just pulls out a gun and shoots him. Uh-huh. Messing so everything with, up. When the guy, right, messing everything up and showing how impulsive and crazy she is. So when the commentary guy says this is where she, it shows that she's stronger than yeah. Robert Mitchum's character, it's like stronger. I thought that was such a weird choice of words there. Cause yeah. And is it the better option to shoot the guy, <laughs> or like, is does that mean no. she's stronger? Isn't the point that she's not? She lost her head and panicked. And yeah, and and meanwhile, Robert Mitchum was trying cool to be and... was trying to dominate the situation without resorting to death. Yeah, um, so I thought that was interesting, and also that commentary guy kept, I don't know. Just, he wanted to give her a lot of credit in the movie, like, well. He, she really did love him, and the audience doesn't know whether to believe her or not. It's like, no, the audience does not believe her at this point. Yeah. Like, the audience <laughs> is not questioning this at all. And I guess yeah. the last thing I wanted to talk about in this section, before we just kind of get into our favorite things, was I really liked comparing the people in the criminal world, like Whit Sterling, his henchman, um, Jim, and just their smiles and they're calm and they're, you know, just quick witted with the things they have to say and just look, they look pretty charming to me. And then the townspeople who are decent are like suspicious, dull, like the, um, Anne has this childhood friend who's now a cop and he, you know, always has things for Anne. He loves her 
and he's just dull compared to Robert Mitchum, and her parents are just not cool for not understanding. Robert Mitchum is so misunderstood, Mm -hmm. but it turns out that, you know, after experiencing the dreamlike world of night and crime and everything and glamour, that just kind of with that undercurrent of violence, um, Jeff Bailey really does want just the boring life. Um, not boring, the the more solid, real, loyal, like, you know, world of I work at a gas station and I have a decent um, partner who's going to be supportive of me and we're not going to get mixed up on crazy crime and stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's even a line where he's explaining his new life to Kirk Douglas mm-hmm. uh, and he's... I run a gas He's station, saying like, I make a small profit. Yeah, I run I run a gas station, I make a small profit, and then I buy groceries, and the grocery seller makes a profit. It's called, it's called making a living. You, you ever try, heard of it? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's funny. Um, and something we talked about is I thought of um, Into the Woods, the musical. There's a song that Lil Red Riding Hood sings called... Uh, it's called I Know Things Now, and it it's pretty fine to read those lyrics after seeing a movie like this, but the big line that you think of is, um, and take extra care with strangers, even flowers have their dangers, and though scary is exciting, nice is different than good. And so where you'd think Kathy and all, you know, even Whit Sterling seem nice in a way, complimentary, um, affectionate. Yeah, Kirk Douglas is super charismatic in that role. Oh, yeah. Um, it's different than good, and the dull townspeople and Anne are good, contrasted with nice. And anyway, and, and another part that made us think of Kirk Douglas. When he said, come in with that sickening grin, (laughs) how could I know what was in store? Once his teeth were bared, though, I really got scared. Well, excited and scared. But anyway, it's Yeah, so that's kind of a a really random uh, connection, but it Eh, worked because, um, you know, Little Red Riding Hood, why not compare it to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of fun thing. When you yeah. see a lot of different things, yeah. you think of random things. But anyway, why don't you tell me some of your favorite things? I've been talking for a while. Yeah, and I was going to, um, back when we were talking about the commentary, there was one thing that I, I did want to address about that too, just because it was something else that I've been learning about recently. Uh, so in the commentary, <clears throat> the, the the guy doing it, says at a certain point something that you will hear, you know, from certain historians that, um, you know, the, the idea of the femme fatale started coming in in the 40s uh, because, partially because um, women were working because of World War II. And so when men came back from the war and they had to find work and they were competing with all these working women now, that it created this enmity between men and women. And um, so men started to see women as, like, um, competition, I guess. 
And they so, were threatened. Uh, they're a threat. Yeah, they. You'll even hear sometimes that it's like a threat to the patriarchy, and, <laughs> and um, so you you will hear this. And it, I I think it's like personally, and I'm not alone in this. I think it's one of those like absolutely classic examples of somebody trying to read in larger historical things where you don't need to read them in. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't really fit. Because uh, I was so listen- many reasons. I was listening to a podcast recently, and I think it was f- called Film Noir Talk. And Imogen Sarah Smith, who's a critic who writes with um, uh, a Criterion Collection, and she's she's pretty well published. She writes about noir specifically. Uh, she was actually talking about this idea on the podcast, and so it really made me perk my ears up when I heard it on the commentary. But she said, like, she totally doesn't buy into this idea either because in most noirs, like, if it were true that it was because men were threatened by women, um, why are basically none of the femmes fatale working women? Instead, they're more like the classic, like, Greek tragedy or Shakespeare-type women where they're, they're like moochers. Um, they're not, they're not working women at all. Like in, like Rosie in Rosie the, the Riveter shows <laughs> up and. Yeah. Yeah. This doesn't, doesn't have a truthful ring to it. it. No, because it, especially if you think of movies during the twenties and the thirties, there were tons of working women in the movies. Like we started thinking about, um, Busby Berkeley movies and like mm-hmm. 42nd street and all of the girls who have to go out and work. And, and what's that one movie? It's a silent movie that has like random parts of talking. Is it a lonely place or lonesome? lonesome? Yep. Yeah. She's a working woman too, right? Yeah, I think so. That's why they're um, they're like in the same apartment building. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot more of. Oh, so I, gotta I, find I feel a like job. there's yeah, there's a lot of commentary in in movies from this time of women having to find work. And the femmes fatale are almost like the opposite. They're the women who are like mooching. And like in Double they're, Indemnity. They're the classic archetype of a temptress. You don't have to read anything else into it. So anyway, things we like about this movie. They're, what's not to like? We like everything about it. Um, the scene changes, like different places. Snappy dialogue we've talked a lot about. Some great quotes. Um, Are there any other quotes you can think of, like, off the top of your head? Um, There's so many. You like that, I mean, uh, I'll think of quotes in a second, but you like that scene in the club with um, her servant who... Yeah, that was, so there's a really interesting depiction of, like, an African-American nightclub Mm -hmm. in the movie. Um, It's like a jazz club, basically, and Robert Mitchum has to go to the club and... uh, and find out information her. about Kathy from her servant. Mm-hmm. And you said, ah, she's a show oh, stealer. I, yeah, I, that's right. I, I thought that the, the African-American servant in that scene was like, a, she was an amazing she's, actress. And it's mm-hmm. just, you know, the nature of watching movies from this time period, you don't see a lot of that. And she she was like a scene stealer to me. I don't even remember her name. I should have looked it up before we did this. But she was great. Mm-hmm. That was a good scene. And, um, oh, other quotes I like, um, (laughs) let's see, Whit Sterling saying, 
I hate surprises myself. You want me to close the door and forget it or something like that? Oh. All of my these quotes are paraphrases because I can't ever remember the exact wording. Because we don't have the movie memorized line by line. Not yet. Only <laughs> seen it a couple times. Um, and I love that scene where he realizes is he's doing the second job for Whit Sterling and he realizes he's being framed. And so he just starts trying to screw everything up. Oh, man. And that's great. some, like, lady is helping. She's in on it, supposed to be leading him along to, you know, get the documents that Whit Sterling needs. And she's like, all right, well, we must go, mustn't we? We're going to be meeting up with the. The Waldens. And he's like, ah, we can meet up with them any old time. And she, like, glares at him. <laughs> yeah, he does exactly what he's not supposed to do. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great part. Oh, and then there's a line in that scene uh, that I think about. Um, women, what is it? Women are all always... All women are all, wonders. Uh, all women are wonders. They reduce men to the obvious. And then and uh, so do Mita, Mark's... the character Mita, she says... Yeah, and so do martinis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's so great. Well, and that's the crux of noirs is women reducing men to the obvious. Yep. Yep. I don't know if I used the word crux correctly, but it sounded okay. Your meaning came across loud yes. and clear. <laughs> it's a fun one. So if you haven't seen it, watch it and enjoy. Yep. Watch it for the... Uh, the dynamic between the small town life and the and the dark city life. Watch it for the great dialogue, the mm-hmm. amazing cast. For the beauty of the women, for the daring of the men. Oh, it's the old school uh, trailer announcer voices back again. <laughs> yeah. Except, like... What you have to imagine is I'm reading the great big captions on because the guy isn't usually reading it, but like there will be huge slanty like descriptions like the greatest film of all time. And yeah, (laughs) well, what was the one for for this movie? I don't remember the trailer, but um, or on the poster, there's something on the poster. It says, don't trust her. She's got a gun and bad ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're not going to let you write uh, these catchphrases for movies. Hey, so noir's great. Enjoy, everyone. (laughs) Um, But what what (laughs) movies... (laughs) Enjoy, everyone. (laughs) But what movies do we have coming up that we want to talk about? I know Christmas is next month. And I'm excited because I want one of our future shows to be our gang. So if anyone uh-huh, is uh-huh. planning to prepare at home, brush up on your our gang comedies. Little rascals. Yeah, because I'm planning on talking about that in a future episode. Are there any you that just, you want to talk you about? You never know what we're going to grab off the shelf and talk about. No. It's just a mystery. Well... <laughs> um. If you've made it this far, thank you. Like we said last time, 
we're not we're not going to get rid of our day jobs. We know we're just movie fans, <laughs> but yep. we really like talking about movies. So thanks for listening. Yep. Connect with us on Twitter, like we said last time. Uh, my handle is at confilmbuff. And my handle is at Sana McDonough. I'll spell it because it's weird. S-A-N-N-A-H-M-C-D-O-N-O-U-G-H. All right. Well, thanks so much, everybody, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.